Cage 3650 Physiology of Exercise Lecture, Tuesday, November 4th, 2009. Uh, cardiac Output. All right, so let's 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 back up first and ask if anybody has any questions about cardiovascular fundamentals. Okay, went through basic functional anatomy, which should be again just review uh, some of the some of the basic components. Any questions about blood? Any questions about blood vessels? Any questions about uh, the the heart itself, the myocardium, the pump? Okay. Am I good? Everybody like, everybody like the Neil Armstrong example? Did he go through that? Okay. So you actually save beats if you exercise and lower your resting heart rate. Okay. But that really mean because if you're exercising at the point where you're exercising, your heart rate's going to go up anyways. So if you're spending two hours a day exercising, your heart rate's going to jump up to about 100. And uh -huh. I mean, wouldn't it kind of even out for someone who's got a sedentary lifestyle? Okay, so the question was, well, there, there, there could be a break point, I suppose. I'd have to go through the math. Uh, I suppose if you did like an Ironman triathlon every day where you were spending eight hours a day at a, at a higher heart rate, um, your resting heart rate wouldn't lower enough to compensate. But if you figure the average person, and the example that I did was... Um, Just cruise on down here. Okay, so so the example I did was um, 30 minutes of exercise a day, and so if you elevated your heart rate to 150 beats, you know that's about 4,500. Um, and and what was it for the sedentary person? How many total beats per day? Anybody remember? About about a hundred or a little over a hundred thousand, okay. So if you if you did an hour a day, that cranks that up to about nine thousand, and say your heart rate went down to the same amount, sixty beat. You're resting sixty beats per minute, you know. Um, but that's only twenty three hours because you're doing an hour here, so that's still about the same. So even though you're spending, and, and chances are, if you're doing twice as much exercise. Is it reasonable when somebody exercises a half hour or an hour a day, pretty much every day, for their resting heart rate to drop to at least 60? Is that pretty reasonable? Would it go lower than that? Yeah. In fact, pretty well-trained endurance athletes, their resting heart rate might be um, 50 or it might be in the 40s even. So, so it would compensate even more by having this be lower. Okay, there's there's some there's some break point, but okay, so makes sense. And actually, today we're going to talk about uh, how this happens. Okay, why your why your heart rate does go down with endurance exercise training. Okay. All right. What's the main purpose or function of the cardiovascular system? What does it do for us? What's the, the most important thing it does for us? Circulate oxygen. Circulate oxygen. Get oxygen to tissues. Okay? It's not to pump blood. It's, it's to circulate oxygen. It just uses blood as the carrier mechanism. All right? So the, the, the main function here that we're concerned with is oxygen consumption. This is our shorthand for oxygen consumption, V.O2. Okay? V stands for? Volume, okay. the The subscript O2 is is the 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 substance that you're looking at. In this case, it's it's oxygen. And what does the little dot up here stand for? In our physiology shorthand, per time, okay. So we're going to look at oxygen consumption uh, in a, in a certain period of time. Now, this oxygen consumption, which we've we've talked about before, and we've talked about VO2 max. This oxygen consumption is a product of two things. It is a product of Q with the dot over it, which is physiology shorthand for cardiac output. Okay, Q with the dot over it is physiology shorthand for cardiac output. That essentially is how much blood the heart moves every 60 seconds. 
Okay, and we'll talk about that in some detail in just a moment. Uh, this next uh, factor is AVO2 difference, or this stands for arterial venous oxygen difference. Okay, and we'll we'll hopefully get to that by the end of today's lecture. If not, we'll we'll hit it on Thursday. It's the difference of the amount of oxygen that's in the blood from the arterial side to the venous side. Okay? Your, your blood is carrying a certain amount of oxygen as it goes into a tissue like muscle. That tissue will take out some of that oxygen, and then there is some oxygen left in the blood coming out on the venous side. And the difference is how much oxygen is retained by the, and, and uh, consumed by that tissue. Okay. So what we're going to do is, in lecture today, we're going to talk mostly about this part of the equation, the cardiac output, and later today, Thursday, we're going to talk about this part of the equation, the AVO2 difference. All right, cardiac output is a product of your heart rate and your stroke volume. Okay, so you multiply your heart rate by your stroke volume to get cardiac output. We express cardiac output in liters of blood per minute. Okay, liters of blood per minute. The heart is a, it, it's basically two pumps in parallel, right? When you think about our cardiac cycle, You've got blood flowing from the atria down to the ventricles and from the ventricles going out at the same time. And so blood from the right ventricle goes where? Pulmonary arteries, okay, to the pulmonary circulation. Blood from the left ventricle goes where? Aorta and systemic circulation, okay? When we are considering cardiac output, we're really just talking about one of those sides, okay? It's, it's essentially measuring... Uh, the output of one side of the heart. It's figured that every single beat or every single 60 seconds, uh, it's not maybe exactly the same on both sides, but it's going to even out over, over some time. There would be very small differences. So you can think of it as how much fluid that pump is moving every 60 seconds. And it's expressed in liters. All right, it is a product of heart rate which is obviously how many times your heart beats every 60 seconds, and stroke volume. Now here's where you know, we get a little bit of confusion, and you need to make sure that you're, you're okay with moving back and forth between milliliters and liters. Okay? The typical size of stroke volume is small enough that we usually talk about it in milliliters. Okay? But that doesn't match up with liters over here. So when we do the math, we've got to convert it to liters. So how many milliliters in a liter? A thousand. So you move the decimal three places. Okay? Make sure you're comfortable with that. What is average for an average-sized human at rest? Our cardiac output is, again, what's average resting blood pressure? 120 over 80. What's average resting heart rate? 70, 72. Okay, what's average resting oxygen consumption? Ooh. 3.5. Whoever said it, yes. 3.5 mLs per kg per minute. That's that sort of general average. Okay, same thing here. People that are typically bigger might be more. People that are smaller, a little bit less. Kind of our global average, about 5 liters per minute. Now, we are a metrically impaired society in that we, we, we still work with the English units of gallons and pounds and things like that. One of the best things that's happened to teaching cardiovascular physiology is the beverage companies, thank you Coca-Cola, for packaging their products in two-liter bottles. Because now you can get a visual of liters. Okay, Five liters, two and a half, Coke bottles of fluid, okay, of blood that your heart will move every 60 seconds just when you're laying on the couch resting. Pretty good pump? Yeah. Pretty good pump. How big's your heart? Let's say roughly the size of your fist. 
Okay, so you've got a you've got a muscle that's about this big that is moving about five liters of blood every sixty seconds, just at rest. Okay, so pretty good pump. All right, we arrive at that because that average resting heart rate is around 70, 72 beats per minute, and the average stroke volume is about 70 milliliters per beat. That means the ventricle fills, it contracts and pushes some blood out into the aorta, and it's typically about 70 milliliters. If we move our decimal place over, one, two, three, that's 0.07 liters, okay? 3.5 is the typical average resting oxygen consumption. So 3.5 mLs per kg per minute. And when, particularly when you do uh, clinical exercise phys, you'll see that as being called one met. Okay? So that's kind of the typical resting amount of oxygen consumption. Milliliters per kg per minute? Milliliters. mLs. ML per kg per minute. And that's what? That's oxygen consumption. That's milliliters of oxygen for every kilogram of your body weight every 60 seconds. What's that? Yeah. Okay. So, if we take 72, we multiply it by 0.07, we get right about 5. So, think about this. When you're just laying on the couch... Your heart rate at rest is about 72. Every time your heart beats, it's pumping out about 0.07 liters or about 70 milliliters of fluid. So every 60 seconds, you're moving about 5 liters of blood. Okay? Why are you moving that much blood at that particular time when you're at rest? To account for the oxygen that your body needs that's necessary to keep you alive at rest. Okay? Now, this is exercise physiology, so we want to see what happens when you exercise. First of all, let's consider steady state exercise or activity. Walking at a steady pace, jogging at a steady pace, riding a cycle ergometer, elliptical trainer, whatever. So, first of all, up here, well, even before we get to cardiac output, let's say after class you go over to the rec center, you get on the elliptical trainer, and you get started at a certain intensity. As your exercise intensity goes up, uh, what happens to your oxygen consumption? It goes up. So your body will consume more oxygen for oxidative phosphorylation to, to replenish ATP. So as our oxygen consumption goes up, the body needs to take in more oxygen and deliver that oxygen to the exercising muscles. Okay? So that's what the cardiovascular system does. The first way that we can see that it meets this increased demand is it increases overall cardiac output. So here we are at rest at 5 liters a minute. You start exercising and your, ox your oxygen consumption goes up, and your cardiac output goes up, and if this is steady state exercise, if you exercise at this steady intensity, you will reach a steady state in cardiac output, delivering enough oxygen to support that level of exercise. Okay? Then when you stop exercising, it slowly comes back down, and eventually we'll get back to resting. Okay? We increase this cardiac output by your heart rate going up, and if you're exercising at a steady intensity, you'll reach a steady state heart rate. You stop exercising, heart rate goes down, and by your stroke volume going up. Here we are at a little under 80. Your stroke volume will go up, reach some steady state, and then when you stop exercising, your stroke volume goes back down to resting eventually. Okay? So response to submaximal Steady state exercise, heart rate goes up, steady state, stroke volume goes up, steady state, therefore cardiac output goes up, steady state. Got it? Is there, Lewis. Isn't like a deficit? The same thing with oxygen There is not, the question is, was, is there sort of a deficit like with oxygen consumption? There isn't really, because the cardiovascular system responds very quickly. 
So, in other words, when you start exercising, does your heart rate go up pretty quickly? Yeah. Uh, and, and so your, uh, and as we'll talk about in a little bit, your stroke volume responds by going up fairly quickly. So cardiac output will go up fairly quickly, but it is a bit of a lag to get the, the, the end point, which is the delivery and the use of oxygen. That does take a couple minutes, which is why you get that oxygen deficit. Okay? The cardiovascular system responds pretty quickly, but there is still some lag time, so you get that oxygen deficit. Okay? And, and the more intense the exercise, if you start off by running really hard, the deficit's bigger because this, this takes longer, if you recall, to get up to the steady state. Okay? Good. Okay, that's steady state. Let's talk about incremental exercise. So we're going to, every couple of minutes, increase exercise intensity until you reach your maximum. Okay? Um, let's come down here to cardiac out. These graphs aren't actually very good. I may, I may just draw my own. But basically the idea is uh, cardiac out, if, if you increase exercise intensity every couple of minutes till the person maxes out, uh, oxygen consumption goes up and maxes out. Cardiac output goes up and maxes out. Heart rate goes up and maxes out. And stroke volume goes up, but it actually sort of plateaus. Okay? We, we reach a point at about 50% of VO2 max. Well, that's a VO2 difference. Where's stroke volume? Here it is. Uh, he says 40 here. I would argue it's probably a little bit higher. Somewhere around probably 50% of VO2 max, uh, uh, stroke volume goes up, maxes out, and even though exercise intensity keeps going up, we've kind of reached our maximum stroke volume. Okay, so it levels off. So we'll, we'll talk about reasons for that in a moment. So here, here's a response from somebody who did a max test in our lab. Uh, here's exercise intensity at the bottom. So here's oxygen consumption from seven and a half up to about 37 and a half. And here's heart rate over here. So the exercise test starts, heart rate goes up, and reaches some maximum, okay? Um, this reached a maximum at right about 35 mLs per kg per minute as their VO2 max. So let's say this was a male. How is that for VO2 max? 35 mLs per kg per minute. That's below average for males. Okay? Um, uh, uh, an average male would probably be 40 to 45 mLs per kg per minute, so this is low. Okay? Uh, what, what's, I mean, if you just generally described this pattern of response, if we get relatively equal increments in exercise intensity, what kind of heart rate response did we get? Linear, curvilinear, exponential? Pretty linear, right? These are real data. These are, this, is not a, this is not a graph you know, made up for a book. So this is a real subject. Uh, and so you get a little bit of variation from that, but it's a pretty straight line response. This is one of the key physiological responses uh, that is important in a lot of what we do in uh, fitness assessment and prescribing exercise intensity is this linear relationship between oxygen consumption going up and heart rate, okay? And you'll, you'll do this a bunch more in the fitness assessment class uh, where we make use of this linear response. But it's a pretty, pretty close to a straight line. Okay, and this person started down here with a heart rate in the 70s and ended up here with heart rate just over 180. It looks like it's about 181 or 182. Um, so you've got some lowest level heart rate, the person's true resting heart rate, and you've got some maximum heart rate, somebody's heart rate max. How do you, how do you figure out what somebody's maximal heart rate is? 220 minus their age. 220 minus their age. Is that, a, is that the best way to figure out somebody's maximal heart rate? Using this formula? What's the best way to figure it out? You hook them up to an EKG, you put them on a treadmill, you run them till they drop, and you measure their heart rate response. 
The best way to figure out somebody's maximal heart rate is to measure it. Okay? Uh, hook them up to an EKG or a, a good quality uh, heart rate monitor. Impose some kind of maximal exercise stress and measure their heart rate response to it. Uh, that's obviously not everybody's preference. It may not be the uh, thing to do in all circumstances, so we do have some ways, like this formula. Most of you have probably heard of this 220 minus age. Okay, So we do have some formulas, but this 220 minus age And we'll just call that predicted, okay, because that's one of the ways that we can predict heart rate max. So if we take 220 minus age, the one standard deviation around that is about plus or minus 10 beats per minute. Okay, when I say one standard deviation, what that tells you is that about two-thirds of the population that you're looking at will be within a range of 10 beats above that figure or 10 beats below that figure. So let's say we take a 20-year-old. 220 minus age, so 220 minus 20. A predicted heart rate max of 200. That means the majority of your population, two-thirds, could easily be as high as 210 or as low as 190. And that also tells us that one-third of the population could easily be outside of that range. So how good of a prediction equation is this? That's pretty general, okay? It's pretty general. There's a lot of variability in maximal heart rate. So the best way to figure out somebody's maximal heart rate is to measure it. Do some kind of uh, maximal exercise test and, and measure somebody's heart rate response. Okay. Um, let's go back to, we'll go back. And you guys should have done this in lab where you looked at um, blood pressure response. And, and this would be uh, more dynamic or aerobic type exercise as exercise intensity increases. You should have seen systolic blood pressure going up. Okay? And diastolic blood pressure probably remaining about the same. Did you guys do that in lab? You did it in lab last week, right? Cardiovascular response to exercise. So with the more aerobic type exercise, you should have seen systolic go up and diastolic remain right about the same. Is that what you all got? It might have even gone down a little bit, right? We'll talk about in a bit why it might have gone down some, but diastolic stays about the same or may actually go down some. With certain types of exercise, you may get big increases in systolic and diastolic, and we'll talk about that down the, down the road some. Okay. Now, if you look at exercise that mostly involves arms, like an arm ergometer or swimming versus legs, running or cycling, for the same level of exercise intensity, the same level of oxygen consumption, for leg exercise, the heart rate response and the blood pressure response is going to be lower. Okay? So the same level of, think of, think of um, in fact, this might be another lab we'll do sometime. Uh, uh, think of sitting on a cycle ergometer riding at 150 watts and then using the arm ergometer that we have using your arms at 150 watts. Same exact exercise intensity, but the heart rate and blood pressure response is going to be higher with the arm exercise. Why is that? Why would that be? Closer to the heart? That's true, but that's probably not it. Smaller muscles. You have less muscle mass doing the same amount of exercise, and so there needs to be a greater cardiovascular response. And we'll talk about some of the uh, compression issues uh, and what's referred to as afterload, but it's a smaller amount of muscle mass doing the same amount of work. So you have a bigger 
cardiovascular response. Okay? All right, so this is what I was getting at before. Best way to determine heart rate max is to measure it. You know, this uh, 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 prediction equation is okay. And if you look at this prediction equation, 220 minus what? The variable is age. Okay? Essentially, our maximum heart rate slowly goes down as we get older and older and older. Roughly every decade of life, your maximum heart rate declines about 10, per, uh, about 10 beats per minute. It is one of those uh, unfortunate, inexorable uh, 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 effects of aging. This is one of the things that you cannot do anything about by maintaining your fitness or, or anything else. Your heart basically ages along with the rest of you. Specifically, what's the pacemaker of the heart? What's the, the tissue in the heart that's the, considered the pacemaker? The SA, sinoatrial or SA node. Essentially what happens is this is the place where you can generate your own action potential to fire the heart rate, and that tissue ages. And it slowly loses its capacity to fire as quickly. Okay? And so eventually your maximal heart rate just slowly declines. Okay, for people that uh, maintain high levels of aerobic exercise activity, masters runners as an example, they maintain a high level of VO2 max, but it slowly goes down with age, mainly because if your oxygen consumption ability is your heart rate and stroke volume times your AVO2 difference, even if you maintained all of those other components, if your maximum heart rate goes down, your VO2 max has to go down. Okay? So, one of the uh, more fun aspects of aging. Okay. Uh, similarly, when you are, if, if you look at someone within a, a year or two of their age, uh, uh, within a year or two of their life, their fitness level does not really affect their maximum heart rate. Take somebody who's sedentary. Let's take our 20-year-old with a maximum heart rate of 200. Let's say they're sedentary. Put them on an aerobic training program for a year. They get in much better shape. They still will reach the same maximum heart rate. Okay? Their max heart rate doesn't really change much. Let's, let's kind of graph out this uh, on their max test. Okay, when they're sedentary, you do a max test. Okay? As you increase exercise intensity, heart rate goes up until they reach some heart rate max. And if that heart rate max is around 200, they started about in the 70s. Okay? So now you put them on a training program for a year. You bring them back and you do the same test on them. First of all, when you hook them up to the EKG and you get ready to start the test, Where's their heart rate in relation to where it was before? It should, it should go down. It should be lower. And just as we talked about earlier. So let's say now they're starting at 60. Ooh, that didn't work too well. Uh, try this one. Oh, this is a red one. There we go. Oh, beautiful. Okay, so now they're starting at 60. At any given level of exercise intensity that's submaximal, their heart rate is going to be lower. Okay? For reasons that we'll talk about in a little bit. But if it's, you know, if this is a, a hundred watts on the cycle ergometer or whatever, um, their heart rate's going to be lower. So lower, 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 lower. They're going to get to the same max. But they're going to hit that max at a much higher exercise intensity. Okay? So they, the, the point being, your maximal heart rate's not really affected by your aerobic fitness level. 
It, it affects submaximal fitness, but you're going to still get to the same max. You're just going to get to it at a much higher exercise intensity. Okay? Does that make sense? Hmm? You said it submaximal? Yes. And, and you all know this. If uh, you haven't been exercising and you go out and you, you know, run uh, two miles at a certain pace or walk two miles at a certain pace, you have a certain heart rate. After you've trained for several weeks or several months, if you go out and run or walk at the exact same pace, where is your heart rate compared to where it was when you started? It's lower. So at any submaximal exercise intensity, after training, your heart rate's going to be lower than it was when you were sedentary or untrained. You still get to the same max, not any higher, not any lower. You still get to the same max. It's just you're now able to go at, to a much higher intensity level. Okay? So there's no way to go through. Well, uh, what, so what is the determining factor? Ah. So what's the determining factor then? How do we get so much? <clears throat> how does our VO2 max go up so much? If our maximal heart rate doesn't change much, what are the other elements of the equation? Cardiac output is equal to heart rate times... So stroke volume might change, and oxygen consumption is heart rate times stroke volume or cardiac output times AVO2 difference, so maybe that element changes, okay? And the short answer is both those change, and we'll talk about that in a minute, okay? <coughs> Actually, we'll talk about it now. Uh, this more specifically related to resting heart rate, but it, uh, this, this will also illustrate what happens during aerobic exercise training. Um, one of the things I talked about, hopefully clearly, in the neuromuscular adaptation was how strength training, particularly high-intensity strength training, does cause some cardiovascular uh, <coughs> modification. Okay? And I called it a pressure overload. And I'll, I'll come back and talk about that again in a little bit. With regular aerobic exercise training, though, what results is a volume overload. And actually, one of the things I didn't do was if we, if we look, well, let me, let me just back up quickly. Cardiac output. Uh, if we're at rest down here at 5 liters a minute, if we increase exercise intensity, cardiac output goes up, and we reach some maximal cardiac output. It pretty much corresponds with VO2 max. You do one of these tests, these maximal tests, when you get to VO2 max, that's about your maximal cardiac output. This scale is pretty good for an average trained person because you can increase your cardiac output up to about 20 to 25 liters per minute. All right. Think about that. Picture in your head, okay, picture in your head 10 to 12 to 13 two-liter Coke bottles that during exercise your heart is moving that much fluid in 60 seconds. That's pretty impressive. A well-trained endurance athlete may improve upon that more up to 30 or 35 liters per minute. Okay? So, now, if you're just sitting there at rest, if you're sedentary all the time, your heart is used to seeing about five liters of blood every minute. Okay? Cardiac cycle. Left ventricle fills with blood, pumps it out. Left ventricle fills with blood, pumps it out. So that over 60 seconds, it's getting about five liters. Let's say you're exercising, though. Uh, even at 50% of VO2 max, this left, this ventricle is seeing about 15 to 20 liters of blood. Okay, during that 30 or 40 or 45 minutes of exercise, the left ventricle is now seeing 15 or 20 liters of blood a minute instead of five. Okay, so what happens is, this is like a cross section of the left ventricle. This is the muscle wall right here. This is the cavity in the middle, the ventricular space in the middle. So during that time that you exercise, for that 30 or 45 minutes or so, this is filling 
with three or four or five times the amount of blood that it normally does. It's getting a volume overload. That causes that left ventricle to stretch and the remodeling, that the, the adaptation that takes place over time is that this left ventricle gets bigger. Okay? The left ventricle gets bigger. Is that like athlete heart syndrome? Yes. He, he asked if that's like athlete's heart syndrome. And, uh, well, it, 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 it depends. Are you talking about like sudden death? No, no, no. Or the, the fact that it's bigger? Yes. yes. Yeah, uh, quick story. A uh, guy who still owns the record for the most number of victories in the Boston Marathon is a guy named Clarence DeMar. Uh, and he was active as a runner um, almost 100 years ago. He ran the Boston Marathon, I don't know, two, I think he's won, he won it seven times. So he ran the Boston Marathon and won it three or four times. And, uh, and then like, either he was sick or he went in for a checkup or whatever, and his physician sent him to have a chest x-ray. You know, which was not typical back in the 19-teens and 1920s. But he went and had a chest x-ray. And when he got the chest x-ray, it came back and, the, and the, you know, the, the guy's heart was like three times the size of hearts that this physician was used to seeing. Now, there are two conditions, one positive, this athlete's heart, and one negative, a pathological condition uh, where a heart can be enlarged. You know, we didn't really have sports medicine at that time, so this physician was not familiar with athletes' hearts. He thought this was a pathological condition. He told him that really you need to stop running because your heart's going to explode and you're going to die. So he quit running for a while. And after a couple of years, he thought, well, that's kind of stupid. I feel fine and nothing's wrong with me. So he, he, he started running again and won two or three more Boston marathons. Okay. He died of cancer in his 60s when they did, a, did a, a, an autopsy. Uh, his heart was about three times the size of an average person his size, but the reason for the uh, increased size was that the left ventricle chamber is bigger. Okay, The pathological kind of myocardial hypertrophy is when the wall gets real thick. Okay, So in this case, his heart is bigger because the chamber's bigger. Now, you've undergone chronic exercise training. Your left ventricle is now bigger. So as you're sitting there at rest or you're laying on the couch, instead of your heart filling with 100 milliliters and pumping out 70, your heart might fill with 150 milliliters and you pump out 100. Okay? So at rest, if you're pumping out 100 milliliters every time instead of 70, does your heart have to beat as often? No, because you can still achieve the same cardiac output with fewer number of beats because with every beat, your, your stroke volume is bigger. So this is the main cardiovascular adaptation of what we, the central adaptation, the pump, that happens. Okay, heart rate doesn't change much, maximal heart rate, but left ventricular size changes quite a bit, and your stroke volume can get much larger. Um, they do, but it's not as dramatic. And, and really, when you think about it, the atria, even though we talk about atrial systole, they, they really are fairly passive. You know, they, they don't really contract with the same strength. Um, there is greater filling, so they will get bigger, um, but the remodeling is probably not as dramatic as it is with the ventricles because there's a... In the typical cardiac cycle, um, systole usually only makes up about 25% to a third of the amount of time, so diastole is about two-thirds. So a lot of the, during uh, uh, ventricular diastole, uh, you've got blood is just kind of flowing through the ventricles, uh, through the atria into the ventricles. So the ventricles don't have to fill as much and then pump them all down into the ventricles. There's more of a, almost a steady flow, if you will. Okay, that makes sense? Okay, so 
This is why your heart rate is lower at rest after endurance exercise training. Here's our typical resting situation where our heart rate's 72, our resting stroke volume is about 70 milliliters. That gives us about five liters per minute. When you are at rest after training, your cardiac output need is about the same. It doesn't really change a whole lot. You need about the same energy to lay on the couch after training as you do before training. Okay? So your cardiac output stays about the same. So that stays at about five liters per minute. But if your left ventricle is bigger and you're able to pump 100 milliliters per beat instead of 70, now your heart has to, doesn't have to beat as many times. So in fact, to achieve the same five liters per minute, your heart rate can be 50 instead of 72. Okay? And that's not uncommon for with endurance exercise training for rest, resting heart rates to go down in the 60s or the 50s or 40s even for people. There was a, a guy who was a, a, a world-class marathoner from Italy a, a number of years ago, 10 or 12 years ago. His doctors actually had to put him on meds because his resting heart rate got so low at night when he was asleep, it was down in the low 30s that it essentially what happened there were such long pauses between his heartbeats that his heart other areas of his heart would get nervous and, and fire off action potentials because they were afraid the SA node wasn't going to kick in so they actually put had to put him on some meds to slightly raise his heart rate because he was having these these dysrhythmias at night so heart rates resting heart rates can go pretty low and and the main reason is because you get the adaptation for the big stroke volume okay Okay, if you guys need to talk, can you take it out in the hall? I'd appreciate it, thanks. All right, um, all right, so here we go. We go back to our cardiac output. So here's cardiac output. We've got heart rate and we've got stroke volume. All right, um, we're going to talk about some factors that influence heart rate and some specific factors that influence stroke volume, okay, how we get that stroke volume response. All right, heart rate. There are many ways that the myocardium is very similar to skeletal muscle, but there are some very specific ways that the myocardium has uh, its own unique characteristics. And one of them is what's referred to as inherent rhythmicity. That is, it can generate its own action potential. You can take the heart out of somebody's body, put it in a petri dish, and it will sit there and still generate force. Okay? Because it doesn't have to be connected to the central nervous system in order to generate that action potential. In fact, people that get heart transplants, okay, you know, that heart is transplanted, completely severed uh, the, uh, from the central nervous system and implanted into their body and we don't have the technique or the ability to reconnect those nerves so that new heart sits in there and it has its own action potential. Mostly, in most cases, generated by the SA node. Okay. The typical, uh, and in fact, if you take somebody's resting heart rate that is a heart transplant patient, their typical resting heart rate is probably going to be 100, 110 in that range. Okay? So the typical intrinsic rate of the SA node is usually higher than our typical resting heart rate. Okay, so there, there is an intrinsic rate. But there are lots of other factors that modify the heart rate. Uh, the first of those is in a typical heart. We've got input from the central nervous system. We have parasympathetic nervous input. So nerves from the parasympathetic branch of the nervous system innervate the heart. And this is primarily the vagus nerve. And it is inhibitory. Okay? So when the parasympathetic nervous system is active, that inhibits or suppresses heart rate. What would that mean? What, the vagal tone? 
That is exactly what vagal tone is. Okay? At rest, if your heart's normal intrinsic rate is 100, but your typical resting heart rate is 70, what that tells us is the parasympathetic nervous system is active while you're at rest. There is some degree of constant parasympathetic or vagal tone that keeps your heart rate lower. Okay? Um, we have input from the sympathetic nervous system, which is stimulatory. So if we get increased sympathetic nervous system stimulation, heart rate will go up. Okay? Fight or flight response. Okay? You get scared. Something scares you abruptly. What happens to your heart rate? Goes up. Okay? That's sympathetic nervous system. And has some other, sympathetic also has some other effects which we'll talk about in a minute. That's the cardiac accelerator nerve. How many of you, uh, how many of you know how to drive a manual shift car? It goes down every year. <laughs> um, yeah, pretty much every, all of them are, are automatics now. But anyway, so in a, in a manual shift car, you don't just have the brake and the, and the gas. You've got a clutch. Okay? Uh, the little town I grew up in, and of course this was in ancient days, so I learned how to, learned how to drive on a manual shift. The little town I grew up in has a, a, a train tracks right through the middle of town, and there's a, a little crossing right there where there's a little bit of a hill, and right on the other side of the train tracks there's a two-lane road. So you come up to the stop sign, and you're on this little bit of a hill, and to be stopped in a manual shift, you've got to have your foot on the brake, and you've got to have your other foot with the clutch pushed in. Okay? And then you put it, and you got it in gear. So, and, and always the hassle was you had to look, and then when there was a break in the traffic and you got ready to go, as soon as you took your foot off the brake to put it on the gas, it'd start rolling backwards. <laughs> so you, so you, had to get, you had to be quick. You had to get good at this. But basically what happened, to get this car going smoothly is you have to press the accelerator, but if you kept the clutch down, what happened? You just rev the engine and you don't go anywhere, okay? Or if you didn't get on the accelerator quick enough and you just let the clutch out, it stalled and then you got embarrassed because people are honking behind you. Okay. So accelerator and the clutch. So when you start to, when you're sitting at rest, you're not going anywhere, you're just sitting here, you've got some parasympathetic or vagal tone, you've got the clutch pushed in, okay, it's active, that's keeping your heart rate suppressed. When you start exercising or you want to start exercising, you need to remove that inhibition and you also need to accelerate. And what your nervous system does is it starts, as you start to exercise, you remove the vagal stimulation, which if you remove inhibition, heart rate's going to go up. And if you push on the gas, the accelerator, heart rate's going to go up. Okay? So you've got, you've got nervous input from parasympathetic and sympathetic. And when you start exercising for heart rate to go up, it's got to be a coordinated effort of both. Make sense? It would also not surprise you that after endurance exercise training, when your resting heart rate is lower, guess what happens with vagal tone? There's more vagal tone. There's more activity of the, of the parasympathetic nervous system, more inhibition of heart rate, heart rate is lower. Okay? Question? So for those who had heart transplants, mm -hmm. if they were to exercise, the heart rate wouldn't go up? Excellent question. So what happens, do, is it good for heart transplant patients to exercise? Yeah. When I worked in the cardiac rehab program at Ohio State when I was a graduate student at the Ohio State Hospital, they, that's, that was the one place at the time they did heart transplants in Ohio. So we got a lot of heart, rate trans, uh, heart transplant patients in our cardiac rehab program because um, because of their inactivity before and the surgery and everything, they have some deconditioning, and so exercise is good for them. Well, how in the heck does our heart rate go up if they don't have any nervous system input? It's a little bit high to begin with, okay? It's about 100 to begin with, but if they start exercising, we want their heart rate to go up so that their cardiac output will go up. How on earth can it go up if they don't have any nervous system input? 
Okay? What happens is, with that fight or flight response, when you're crossing Decatur Street out here, we got this nice new streetscape project and everything, which uh, looks nice, but actually maybe makes it a little more dangerous because now people are comfortable and they're not paying attention. You start to step out in the street, MARTA bus goes right by your nose, you jump back on the sidewalk, not only has your heart rate gone up, do you feel the <laughs> pounding? Okay, that is epinephrine, which is squeezed out of your adrenal glands, okay, circulates through your body, interacts with tissues like uh, receptors on the myocardium, causes increase in heart rate, and also causes the heart muscle to contract with greater force, okay? So, epinephrine can result in heart rate increases. So, uh, and exercise is a stress. So, as you exercise, it's a stress, your body will release epinephrine. The epine your adrenal glands release epinephrine, circulates around the body, interacts with receptors on the myocardium, that causes the myocardium to increase both rate and how hard it contracts, which is how cardiac re uh, transplant patients increase their heart rate. But, so what does that say for warming up and cooling down? Is their heart rate going to respond as quickly as somebody who has an intact nervous system? No, because that whole process takes longer, so they have to have a much more gentle warm-up to slowly get them up to their exercise intensity. And then also when they stop exercising, they need a nice long cool down so that these um, uh, hormones circulate and are metabolized and removed from the system. Okay? So exercise is excellent for transplant patients. You just have to be careful about how you go about doing it. <clears throat> All right, some other factors that influence heart rate. Uh, stretch. Uh, there's a stretch reflex. Okay, we saw a stretch reflex with skeletal muscle, and if you stretch it slightly, it will respond with producing more force. Okay? The heart has a stretch reflex in that if you stretch it, it will respond by increasing rate. Okay? So how do you stretch the heart? What kind of exercise do you do to stretch the heart? Pardon? What's that? Okay, and what, what about cardiovascular exercise causes the heart to stretch? More blood volume, right? You get more blood coming back to the heart, the heart fills with more blood, it stretches. And it responds with a reflex reaction to increase its rate. Okay? Um, pressure. We have some baroreceptors or pressure receptors in your carotid arteries, okay? In the arch of the aorta, arch of the aorta, and your carotid arteries, you have pressure receptors, okay? They help us regulate um, heart rate because if pressure gets too high, the body doesn't want blood pressure to get too high, so there's a reflex to slow the heart rate down. And the opposite would be, let's say you were laying on the couch all day, uh, one day over the weekend. You lay on the couch all day, and uh, you know the, the phone rings or the remote breaks, so you got to get up and change the channel yourself. So you stand up, and you get kind of dizzy and lightheaded and see those little black spots. Okay? That's because when you're lying like this, your blood is distributed horizontally. When you stand up, because of hydrostatic pressure, blood wants to fall towards your feet. Right, and if you don't get adequate cardiac output, um, a little functional anatomy here. As the blood is coming out of the left ventricle, what are the first arterial branches coming out of the left ventricle? The very first arterial branches. Pardon? No. For, uh, branching off of the aorta, the very first arteries off the aorta. Coronary arteries. Okay. What are the next ones? Carotid, right? So we got to get blood flow to the brain. So that dizzy, lightheaded, seeing black spots is telling us we're not getting enough blood flow to the brain. And so the cardiovascular system needs to respond by pumping up pressure. And the way we do that the most quickly is to increase rate. Okay? So if blood pressure falls low, we increase rate to get it back up. And if blood pressure is too high, we decrease rate to reduce pressure. Okay? 
temperature can affect a heart rate. You know, typically if you cool it, heart rate, it suppresses heart rate. If you warm it, increases rate. Uh, and there's a whole variety of different drugs. Amphetamines, caffeine as an example, can increase rate. Uh, drugs like beta blockers can decrease rate. Okay, so lots of different influences on heart rate. I'm going to skip over this. This just shows the innervation. Um, I'll skip over that. Okay. Let's talk for a minute about, about, so that's heart rate. Let's talk about stroke volume. Three important components or, or, or uh, issues when you're talking about stroke volume. They're called preload afterload and contractility. Okay? Preload, afterload and contractility. These are factors that independently will affect how much blood will be pumped out with each beat of the heart. Stroke volume. All right, let's talk about stroke volume. Or uh, preload. This is stroke volume. This stands for end diastolic volume, and this stands for end systolic volume. Diastole is the period of time during the cardiac cycle when the ventricle is doing what? It is relaxed, so the heart muscle is relaxed, and so what is happening? It's filling. Okay, so during diastole, when the when the and let's just talk about the left ventricle, during diastole, when the left ventricle is relaxed, it is filling with blood. Uh, at the end of diastole, we then start the next part of the cardiac cycle that we call systole. And so, what's happening during systole? Left ventricle is contracting. Okay, so during diastole. When you get to the very end of diastole, there is a certain amount of blood that is in the ventricle. Okay? So then the, the, the left ventricle starts to contract, starting systole. It contracts relatively quickly, and then it starts to relax. So at the very end of systole, there is a certain volume of blood left in the ventricle. Okay? So... The difference between those two, how much it filled with minus how much was left at the end is how much was ejected or the stroke volume. What is very typical is that we do not pump out all of the blood that the ventricle fills with. Okay. What is very typical at rest is the left ventricle will fill with about 100 milliliters and when systole is over, there's about 30 milliliters left. So our stroke volume is that 70 mils we talked about. And so just uh, uh, for a future thing we're going to talk about, what, what's the percentage of blood that is pumped out? 70%. Okay. So at rest, it's pretty common to pump out about 70% of the blood that the ventricle fills with. Okay. That's what we call ejection fraction. Okay, that is a term that's called ejection fraction. Of the blood that the ventricle fills with, what percentage do we pump out? That's a measure of performance of the ventricle. In this case at rest, it's about 70%, which is about normal for a healthy heart at rest. About 70%. Okay. Um, now, the myocardium has a very uh, basic property to it that, again, is, is you, you can sort of think of it as being similar to the stretch reflex in skeletal muscle in that if you stretch the heart muscle, it will respond with a greater force of contraction. Okay? 
And the way we stretch the heart is by filling it with more blood. So if you fill it with more blood and it contracts with more force, what happens to stroke volume? It's going to go up. Okay? If we can do something, and this is called venous return, if we can do something to get more blood to come back to the heart, it will cause the heart muscle to stretch. It fills with more blood and it stretches more. It responds with a greater force of contraction and stroke volume then goes up. Okay? So what causes more blood to get back to the heart? Just, well, here's the example. It, here's, here's our typical example at rest where we got 100 mils. We pump out 70%, so our stroke volume is 70 mils. If we fill with 150 instead of 100, we can pump out 105. Okay, So our stroke volume has gone up. And that's without changing the ejection fraction. Okay. Um, I grew up in, in, a, in a small town outside of Orlando, which for some reason, only probably known to the U.S. military, they constructed one of the biggest naval training centers in the country in Orlando, 80 miles from the ocean. They actually built models of ships on the ground, okay, to, to train these sailors. So my, my cousin, uh, who was uh, about 10 years older than me, uh, when he got out of high school, enlisted in the Navy, and that's where they sent him to do his, his training. So we went to, when his class graduated from the uh, Naval Training Center, we went to the uh, graduation ceremony uh, in July or August in Orlando, where it's about 95 degrees and about 95% humidity and no trees. You're out in, the, out in the, this big parade ground. So I remember sitting up in the stands and seeing all of the, and uh, in, in those days the Navy was just men, uh, so all of the, the men who were graduating from basic training in their uniforms standing at attention out on the parade ground, big, like, parking lot, asphalt field. So some, you know, admiral gets up and talks, and, and some you know, other guy gets up and talks, and, you know, people are uh, talking, and I'm trying to see where my cousin is and all that group out there. Well, pretty soon, you know, bam, some guy goes down. And they run out and, with a stretcher and scoop them up and take them off. And, uh, and, they, they, and a little while later, it's hot and humid. Everybody's sweating. You know, we're sitting in the stands. We've got umbrellas to keep the sun off of us. And you're looking out there, and all of a sudden, you know, bam, somebody else goes down. And I'm, and I'm thinking, this is our, this is, these are our fighting men, you know. And they're, out, they're out there passing out. So... I didn't think about that until a long time later when I took a cardiovascular physiology class and I figured out what was going on. Okay? Uh, when you have to stand for long periods of time, what do they tell you not to do? Don't lock your knees. Okay? So, yeah, it doesn't necessarily cut off blood flow and it doesn't cut off blood flow going in this direction, but when you lock your knees, you take a lot of your weight on your long bones like this and you don't use your muscles as much for posture. Okay, One of the most important ways to return blood from the periphery, particularly up against gravity, is by rhythmic contraction of muscle, which is called the muscle pump. Okay? The other thing, and particularly in, in occupations where you have to stand for long periods of time, what do they give people that they put on the floor? Cushions. Rubber mats, cushions, right? Because when you stand on a hard, firm surface, it helps you keep your balance better. Okay, not only is it more comfortable to have a cushion, but when you have this, this thick cushion, you can't see it, but you have people actually you know, move very slightly. And when you move very slightly, you have to contract skeletal muscle to maintain your balance. And when you do that, those muscles contract, and it helps push blood back towards your heart. Okay? So here you've got all these guys standing out there. They're standing at attention. They're getting tired, so they lock their knees. They're also standing on asphalt, nice hard surface, so they're not getting much postural movement. Um, one of the other ways, which we'll talk about in a little more detail next time, that you get more um, blood back to the heart 
is that when you increase your ventilation, you increase, uh, I should say, you decrease the pressure in your thorax. Okay, when you inhale, you, the pressure in your intrathoracic cavity goes down, which helps you pull air in. But the other thing that that does is it helps pull blood back up here. Well, they're standing there at rest, so their ventilation's not doing a whole lot. Okay? The other thing is venoconstriction. Your veins have smooth muscle. And if you can get those veins to contract, they'll help push blood back. But if you're standing there and it's hot and it's really humid, where is a lot of your blood flow going? To the surface of your skin, okay, to try to get rid of some of this heat. So these sailors were standing there. They had blood flow going out but they weren't getting much blood flow coming back. And I'll tell you, the basic cardiovascular principle, your heart can beat a thousand times a minute, but if it doesn't have any blood in it, what's going to happen to your cardiac output? It's going to be zero. Okay? So this was blood pooling in the extremities because they were not getting venous return. And if you don't get adequate cardiac output... The first things that are affected are either the heart or the brain. And so in this case, they were not getting adequate blood flow to the brain. You get dizzy, lightheaded, and if it gets low enough, you pass out. Okay? Same, exact same thing that we talked about where you're laying on the couch and you stand up quickly. Hydrostatic pressure, this blood falls towards your feet, and you get dizzy and lightheaded unless your cardiovascular system corrects it relatively quickly. Okay? So... Um, so the U.S. Navy turned out to be a, a, a reasonable uh, uh, cardiovascular physiology um, example uh, in, in my youth. All right, so we'll continue with this idea on Thursday and finish up cardiac output and move on to AVO2 difference.